2: And thank you for tuning in to the 227th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is presented by HBO's The Defiant Ones, a docu-series that chronicles the unlikely yet unbreakable bond of trust and friendship between Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, for your consideration in all categories, including outstanding documentary series. My guest today is a beloved comedy actor who became famous as part of TV's most celebrated sextet. He played Joey Tribbiani on NBC's massively popular comedy series Friends from 1994 through 2004, then was rather infamously part of a short-lived Friends spin-off, Joey, which ran on the Peacock Network from 2004 through 2006, and most recently, from 2011 through 2017, he starred on yet another comedy series, Showtime's Episodes, essentially playing a heightened version of himself, Matt LeBlanc. LeBlanc is not only a fan favorite, but also an industry darling. Over the course of his 30 years in the business, he has landed seven Emmy noms, three for Friends and four for Episodes in the category of Best Actor in a Comedy Series, five Golden Globe noms for Best Actor in a TV Musical or Comedy, two for Friends, one for Joey, and two for Episodes, winning once in 2012 for his work on the first season of Episodes, and one SAG nom in the category of Best Actor in a Comedy Series for Friends. This summer, he is considered a serious threat to land another Emmy nom, which could lead to his first Emmy win for the final season of episodes, which came to an end in October. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my good friend Aaron Couch, who is the senior editor of Heat Vision, our terrific blog devoted to fanboy entertainment. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you, Scott. So yesterday, Thursday, was the first official day of summer, and at midnight... Universal began rolling out what is expected to be the first huge blockbuster of the summer, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. This film, which was directed by Juan Antonio Bayona, the same guy who did The Impossible and A Monster Calls, comes 25 years after the original Jurassic Park, which was a VFX game changer and gave me nightmares for many years. 21 years after its first sequel, The Lost World Jurassic Park, 17 years after its second sequel, Jurassic Park 3, and three years after its third sequel, Jurassic World, which had the biggest June opening of any film in history, taking in nearly $209 million in its first week. You have seen this latest installment.
1: How does it compare to these others? Yeah, you know, I actually liked it more than the previous Jurassic World movie. I thought it did something a little bit different, which is, you know— it's kind of apparent from the trailers that they're not going to spend the entire time at the park or on the (laughs) island. And that was cool. And I think what Bayona brought to it was a little bit more of a nuanced thing going on. Like Mm -hmm. you have a lot of empathy for the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. It asks a lot of questions about what is our responsibility as humans Mm -hmm. if we, you know, bring life into this world. Mm So I thought it was good. Now, 2015's Jurassic World is, I think, the fourth biggest movie of all time. Mm -hmm. This movie is not going to... Get there. You don't think so? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at the box office tracking, it's going to open significantly lower. Mm -hmm. Maybe akin to kind of Force Awakens versus Last Jedi. You know, there was quite a drop off there. I mean, Last Jedi still made tons of money, but... I don't think this is going to be as big as the first one.
2: Is that just because people have not been asked to wait as long between installments, sort of like something else we'll talk about shortly, Solo, Star Wars Story, where it's just like, you know, the novelty has worn
1: off a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about it. There were three Jurassic Park movies. Mm -hmm. It had been, I don't know, something like 13 years since the previous installment, Mm -hmm. and those sequels weren't particularly well received. Mm -hmm. So it had really been years since the first movie it's kind of like the prequels with Star Wars. Yeah. Those movies weren't well-received. Finally, with Force Awakens, we had a great movie, right. and Star Wars is back. Jurassic Park was finally back. And and now, it's yeah, the novelty is not there. Exactly. Interesting.
2: Well, let me ask you about some of the other high-profile movies that rolled out before the summer but are still going into the summer. And then also about some of the high-profile movies that are still to come this summer. First, those that are already in progress. It's been a big year so far for horror movies. Paramount's *A Quiet Place*, directed by John Krasinski and starring his wife Emily Blunt, cost seventeen million dollars and has grossed nearly one hundred and eighty-seven million domestically. And then *A24's Hereditary*, directed by this thirty-one-year-old guy Ari Aster and starring Tony Collette, cost ten million dollars and has grossed more than thirty-one million domestically. These are not your throwaway horror movies of the sort that I guess we're sort of used to but there's something a little deeper about them is that the reason why they are clicking people do respond to
1: smart movies still Yeah I mean it seems like you know everybody will point to Get Out as kind of starting the trend and and people talk about this term elevated horror mm-hmm. which is supposedly horror like Get Out yeah. or A Quiet Place that you know is a little bit classier maybe means a little bit more and if you talk to horror fans, they they kind of bristle at that term because <laughs> they say, hey, horror has always meant something. It's right. always been about this. But it does seem like, you know, whether you like the term or not, it is paying off at the box office now. I mean, people this is what kind of what people want is is these these smarter, smarter takes, I guess.
2: And they both have a little bit of Oscar buzz around them. Certainly people are talking about in the actress race, both Emily Blunt from A Quiet Place and now Toni Collette from Hereditary it's interesting. Again, it does come back to Get Out that, you know, the Academy long had sort of a bias toward genre fare, but certainly after last year with The Shape of Water and Get Out doing so well, it suggests that maybe these efforts to revamp the membership of the Academy are also causing them to be a little more open-minded about what great movies are. But moving on to two other movies that began rolling out before the summer and are still hanging on a little bit. These were kind of disappointments from Disney. That's something, a phrase you don't hear often, disappointments from Disney. But basically, after the phenomenal success early in the year of Black Panther, Disney then released Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time, which was a $103 million adaptation of a well-known novel of the same name, of course. And then also Ron Howard's Solo, A Star Wars Story, which we mentioned earlier. This was a roughly $275 million spinoff of the most
1: famous franchise in movie history. And neither did very well at the box office. What is that about? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think Solo is kind of the the easier one to answer, right? Which is people keep saying that, well, we just, you know, Star Wars is becoming less special. I mean, this, this movie really didn't tell you anything you didn't know already. It didn't show you anything that you really needed to know. It wasn't even like Rogue One, which was also a prequel, mm-hmm. but it was all new characters. You didn't know what was going, you, you in a sense, knew it would happen. Yeah. They're going to steal the Death Star plans. Right. But you did not know where it was going. Where this one, oh, he's going to meet Lando, and you know he's a guy that likes flying spaceships. <laughs> I mean, there just wasn't anything there to really make you go, I need to go see this. Unlike even Last Jedi, it was divisive, but you wanted to know, who are Ray's parents? Are they going to answer right. all these questions? They didn't answer them, but people still wanted to go see it. There's right. that level of excitement for that. For so, so they're new.
2: calling it Star Wars fatigue because it's just these guys are... I guess alternating between a spinoff and a main, whatever you'd call it, a main installment, a part of the main franchise, almost every year, basically every
1: year, right? And that's just more than even Star Wars rabid fans want. Right. This was the first time where there was basically, I think, a, a six-month window. Mm-hmm. Usually, it was an entire year, so six months was just too soon. You know, I think Disney may have thought. Well, Marvel can release a movie every four months, but those Marvel movies are different. You have Black Panther, Ant-Man, Avengers. They're not the same. Star Wars, there's a little bit of a... It's the same thing every time, right? You're not having these different genres within it.
2: And this one hasn't even cracked $200 domestically. I think it's the lowest grossing of any Star Wars movie spinoff or main one ever, and has been described in some circles as, quote unquote, the movie nobody wanted. And I know that Disney, as you've just written, is still processing. It's been a humbling experience for Disney.
1: Yeah, you know, they haven't actually officially dated any movies other than J.J. Abrams' Episode Nine for mm-hmm. uh, December 2019. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we knew from from sourcing that they were working on an Obi-Wan movie, hopefully with Ewan McGregor. There were uh, James Mangold's developing a, yep. a Boba Fett spinoff. You know, while none of those are officially greenlit, they, the, the solo disappointment has caused them to kind of reassess what they're going to do with this stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, going into solo, it would be a natural fit to say, hey, we really need to fast track a Donald Glover, Lando Calrissian movie because mm-hmm. people loved him from the movie. Right. But if the movie is such a disappointment, that's probably not on the fast track anymore, right. you know?
2: A wrinkle in time, meanwhile, first $100 million movie ever directed by a black woman. And it just did not perform really it's now just crossed the 100 million dollar mark domestically because it looks like disney upped the number of theaters in recent weeks as it was getting it looked like that number was attainable i guess symbolically that's significant that at least its domestic haul is going to be almost what its budget was maybe a little over that but those aren't the kinds of numbers disney was hoping for
1: some people have said Maybe it's a case of the book really was unfilmable. Mm-hmm. It, there, there was just something there where audiences weren't really responding to it. You know, A lot of people did like it. If you look, look on social media, mm-hmm. a lot of people liked the representation and, yeah. and the message of it, a very positive message. Yeah. But maybe it just wasn't the kind of thing where people were rushing out to see it for whatever reason. You know, And, and for me, it was a little bit of a... I'm an adult, and it was a little bit of a kid's movie, yeah. which is actually great because yeah. kids need movies. Yeah. I think we're so used to kid properties like Marvel being made for adults that we think when we actually see a real kids movie we go oh i didn't really relate but that's kind of the point though it's not for me right well it's- i
2: wonder if that was maybe ultimately just a marketing problem because maybe people just didn't really understand who it was aimed at
1: yeah that that definitely could have been the case right but i've talked to parents whose kids loved it yeah yeah
2: meanwhile disney has had tremendous success through uh, another segment of its business, the Pixar side of things, where The Incredibles 2 had a record-breaking opening weekend last weekend. Its $100 million opening weekend gross was the highest for any animated film ever and one of the top 10 openings of any film ever, animated or otherwise. What does this mean for Pixar at a time when they've just lost their their leader, John Lasseter, who was caught up in the whole Me Too thing? and who has now been replaced by Pete Docter and Jennifer Lee, two filmmakers who have worked at Pixar. And then why do you think this sequel, 14 years after the original Incredibles, has really resonated so much? It just seems to me that people who were kids 14 years ago and loved it have probably aged out of the Target demo, but I guess a whole new generation's been been raised on the on the DVD or streaming of it. I,
1: who I'd be curious what you think that's all about. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see... These movies take so long to make that the kind of the effect of Lasseter's exit it'll take a little while to mm-hmm. to see how that goes. I mean, he's certainly one of the f- top credits on there when you when you watch the movie. Executive produced by John Lasseter mm-hmm. is one of the first things I I remember seeing. Yeah, you know, so they've made some changes now for obvious reasons, and and I guess they'll just we'll, we'll see how it goes. But yeah. obviously, Incredibles. I think I don't think that people age out of Incredibles really. You know, it really was an all ages movie, and you don't actually. People say that all the time, but this actually was. I remember Mm -hmm. seeing it with my grandmother, the Mm -hmm. first one. Mm -hmm. She loved it. My whole family loved it. And the great thing about this kind of sequel is, you know, movies like Zoolander or Dumb and Dumber, people beg for years, (laughs) please make a sequel. (laughs) And they make it and it's terrible. You know, the the magic isn't there. But if you have Brad Bird, the same actors, the actors have aged, but the characters don't have to. So it's not... There's no issue there where that can make things awkward you know. if you wait 10 years to make a sequel to a comedy. But this one kind of seamlessly just worked. True. Well, looking ahead to the rest of the
2: summer, I just want to ask you about a few titles that are higher profile ones on the schedule. Disney's releasing Ant-Man and the Wasp on July 6th. Speaking of sequels, then Universal's dropping Skyscraper starring The Rock on July 12th. Paramount's got Tom Cruise back in a Mission Impossible movie. This one subtitled Fallout on July 27th. I know there are plenty of others as well. What do we know about these and, and what are you most looking forward to for the rest of the, for the next few months?
1: Yeah, I'm, d- I'm definitely a, a, a Marvel faithful. So, I mean, Ant-Man, whatever the Marvel movie will always be the one I'm looking forward to. So <laughs> Ant-Man and Wasp, which is interesting though. It's, you know, it's their lowest key franchise coming out after their biggest movie ever, Avengers Infinity mm-hmm. War. So it'll be you know, this movie is set before the events of Avengers, oh. so it'll be interesting to see. Though this lower stakes type of thing is—is is that a palate cleanser? Are mm-hmm. people ready to see something a little bit more fun and carefree, or will they not find it as powerful and intriguing? You know, skyscraper with the rock. Yeah, I don't think I—I I have seen it. I think the embargo's still up, so I can't see can't anything say much, other than yeah. that. I did like it. Yeah, this was an interesting case where it's clearly made for the Chinese audience, a Chinese audience, it's a legendary movie. Mm-hmm. But it, it's one where, you know, Hollywood often casts Chinese actors to get the international audience and sometimes people call it out for saying this is, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't give these people a great role. Right, this is they're band- just in there. Yeah. I think people will be surprised in this one the characters actually all hold up. Wow. Uh, so, I think that has a lot of potential at least overseas. I don't know here, rampage right. just came out, so I don't know if people have rock fatigue, <laughs> but it's possible, you know.
2: Right. And I see he's now lined up a movie, probably a
1: couple years down the road, though, with Gal Gadot. Right. Yes. Exactly. I believe directed by the same director of skyscrapers. Oh, so, interesting. Okay.
2: Yeah. And then what about Mission Impossible? Can it?
1: What number is this? Number yeah, this is number six, okay. and <laughs> like the last few movies, the marketing is all about the one signature stunt. In this case, it's uh-huh. a, a really high skydiving scene. That's all Tom Cruise is talking about for the last you know <laughs> three months or so. Right. But those are always a dependable, faithful. Yeah. Or a, you know, if people go to those; they seem to enjoy them. And you kind of, you know, he he still delivers something new every time. It's true. I, I love mean, the last one. He still got it. He's how old is he now? Fifty yeah, something I years, I think.
2: Old. Oh my god! Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll see him in a what, a year or two in the Top Gun
1: sequel? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm pretty excited yeah, for. Me too. Yeah,
2: Other just general things to
1: look forward to, Creed 2, we see a trailer now, that's coming out, what, end of this year? Yeah, Creed 2 is coming out, I think, around Thanksgiving, so three years after the first one, and uh, the the trailer dropped, and the, po- the reaction was pretty positive, you know? I mean, Ryan Coogler, the director of the first one, has gone on to be the biggest director in the world now. And he's not
2: directing this one, though? Not
1: directing this one. And so I think that's kind of the question mark is, can they retain the magic? But the, the, the reaction was pretty positive.
2: Wonder Woman 1984, the sequel to Wonder Woman, has begun production in DC. This is, of course, appropriately enough, a DC Comics project. And they have had some executive turnover lately and actually have only one other release this year, Aquaman. So, is it maybe not surprising that they are hyping this one up already? It's just something to keep their fan base, you know, jazzed until until it comes out. I guess next year.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely the closest property they have to a Marvel property mm-hmm. in the sense that you can show a picture, you know, a year early, and people will legitimately be excited about it. I mean they revealed that Chris Pine is back for this one somehow. (laughs) No one's ever dead. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's set in the eighties. People, uh, I mean, come on, everything's set in the eighties now. So it seems like the magic thing they need right now, keep that goodwill going. And it kind of like we're talking about with Lucasfilm. I mean, Warner brothers, DC arm, they're trying to refocus and figure out what works and, and what to do, because there's been a long time where they, you know, kind of been developing everything. Let's, develop four harley quinn movies and hopefully one of them happens you know so i think they're really refocusing so we'll see what happens yeah
2: what about over at fox they are obviously in the middle of a, a bidding war between disney and comcast disney appears to have the edge why is a place like fox appealing to disney aside from everyone's obviously trying to grab up ip but fox specifically what would the value of that be to disney if they end up
1: closing that deal Well, I mean, one thing in particular is Fox has the license to a number of Marvel characters, most notably the X Men and Fantastic Four. So, if you're looking to okay, we've just finished ten years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, how do we get ten more years out of this? Introducing Wolverine to that universe sounds like a pretty good way to do it to me. You know, I think Fantastic Four is another one where there's never been a good Fantastic Four movie, but they were the kind of the first. Marvel superhero team yeah. and if you did it right you gave it to Kevin Feige that could be another Guardians of the Galaxy level hit you know I mean they're such great characters it's just they've never been done properly yeah let's close on a I wish I could say it's a happy note but
2: it's not but it is something that everybody's talking about this week and that is this new Rolling Stone profile of Johnny Depp who has obviously been one of the most beloved actors of our lifetime yours and mine and has really been a fanboy favorite since over the last 15 years, since the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, at least. And yet, by all indications, I mean, we had a story, I think Stephen Galloway did here at THR, that suggested that he was in some sort of a weird situation where he was almost bankrupt, despite having made hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. Now we're getting a little bit more of a perspective from inside the Depp camp, because this piece is the result of a guy spending about 72 hours with him, basically Johnny Depp reached out his camp reached out to this writer going around his own publicist to make this happen that's always a questionable move why do you think he did that and what do you think the
1: effect of this piece actually is now that people are, are, are reading it yeah I mean well I'm not sure why he did it I, I would imagine that there have definitely been some some unsavory news stories about him over the years with you know his his divorce and allegations of domestic abuse Uh and things like that. And he's gotten pushback from, you know, fans of the Harry Potter franchise. He's in the Fantastic Beasts movies. And I guess their next one's supposed to come out November 16th. Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. So this is already in the can? I I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. They certainly aren't recasting him because J.K. Rowling put out a statement because, you know, people were so upset about him still being involved in this franchise. She put out a statement kind of standing by him. So I mean they're sticking with him. So I imagine that the hope was this profile would, you know, bring some goodwill, but it just doesn't seem like it was well thought out, right? No, because because there's Yeah. It was a very interesting story, but it certainly didn't really do him any favors.
2: No, I mean they're talking about the fact that he he does appear to be having some real substance issues and in fact, you know, on top of whatever financial issues he's Dealing with. And I guess it's a matter of finger pointing between him and his old, his former managers. But yeah, I mean, I guess this piece doesn't give you, doesn't leave you feeling that he has a ton of credibility or stability in his life at the moment. He's drinking, smoking all the time, and also doesn't seem to be functioning even on the job, they're talking about an earpiece that he now requires sort of like Brando did at the end. And I don't know, I just had a a horrible feeling reading it that it's almost like what we saw in the run-up to the end of Amy Winehouse, which was so sad because we saw this is a self-destructive person and we all saw where it was appeared to be headed and yet nobody could get into her circle to stop it. And I, I don't know about you, but I was watching this. It's just a sad thing to see somebody who was the king of the business, and a favorite of all of ours, just appears to be going down the toilet. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Aaron Couch, thank you so much for joining us, and I guess it's going to be a fun summer at the movies. Yeah, thanks, Scott. And now for my interview with Matt LeBlanc. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 50-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a guy from a blue-collar Massachusetts family wound up modeling in New York for a while and then had a chance meeting while there that led to the beginning of his career as an actor. How, after several years of acting on Fox's Married with Children and various spin-offs of it, he wound up auditioning for Friends. How he was impacted personally and professionally by the creation and ascension of Friends, and, after it came to an end, the creation and perceived failure of Joey, after which he didn't work again for five years what it took to convince him to return to series TV on episodes to play a version of himself, and what that experience, shared by only a few others like Larry David, Louis C.K., and Ricky Gervais, was like, what his outlook is for the future, including his thoughts on the possibility of a Friends reboot and retirement, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We always begin with just some basic background. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living?
3: Well, I was born in Newton, Massachusetts. My mom worked in a place that made like circuit boards and stuff like that. She was a quality control supervisor and my dad was a mechanic.
2: Mm-hmm. I tried to read back as far as I could other interviews you've done and I it sounds like I guess because of Vietnam maybe your dad wasn't around as much when you were a kid is that right
3: yeah yeah I mean it wasn't just Vietnam they my folks split up as well
2: (laughs) (laughs) but I was reading because of him and because of your grandfather and because of just I guess a lot of people in your family there was a very kind of blue collar idea of what you should grow up and do
3: yeah pretty much everyone in my family goes to work with some sort of tool in their hand Mm -hmm. which and that's sort of where I was headed and I think that's why I sort of spend a lot of time in the garage or in the barn, you know, kind of like fixing something, working on something that's kind of therapeutic.
2: Yeah, and you went fairly down that road, right? I mean, you were... Yeah, I I went to school to be a carpenter, and
3: I was an apprentice, you know, I worked as a carpenter's apprentice from the time I was about 14, you know, summers and weekends and stuff, and I worked for the shop teacher, you know, helping him with side jobs and things like that, and that's where I would have been. Yeah. Framing houses in the snow in New England in the winter is no fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I was like, you know, there you go. Know, there might be a better way. Tell jokes on TV. <laughs> right. It
2: might, be, it might be warmer. <laughs> well, just to connect the dots from how you got to acting, I read that you wound up, I guess, probably right after high school, modeling, which I don't think too many people are from Newton maybe end up doing. How did that enter the picture?
3: Uh, I went to college in Boston, to Wentworth, and I dropped out in my first year. I was, you know, I studied uh, building construction technology and basically was learning stuff I already knew. So it seemed kind of silly to pay to learn how to do something mm-hmm. I could go get paid to do. Right. So I left there and I ended up going to New York just to visit a friend who was in school there. And I went into the city just to visit. Mm-hmm. And just kind of by chance met this manager who said that i could do commercials
2: just kind of think that if i've got the story the background of that story right it's like one of these things that could be a movie itself you're just like walking on park avenue and checking out a, a hot girl basically
3: yeah yeah i met this girl and she was on her way to an audition and she, i went with her and then she she said you should meet my manager I was, you know that kind of did and never really went out with a girl, but <laughs> <laughs> her manager became my manager doing commercials and stuff like that. But I had gone there originally to mm-hmm. sort of look and get some... Someone had said to me, planted the seed about modeling and you should go and, you know, so I went and had some photos taken and Basically, got burned for 300 bucks.
2: On the same trip where you met girl? No,
3: it, that was back when you had to, like, you know, it was way before digital. So you went and took the pictures and you went back to look at the developed <laughs> thing and then you went back again to, you know, it was all these trips to New York to go and do that. And it, just at the end, I was like, nah, this isn't for me. Right. So, right I was when. Throwing in the towel. Yeah. When I met this girl, and then the manager, and then I then I started doing commercials and stuff like that.
2: Well, I gather that you were like the the king of commercials. I saw that in the late '80s you were doing Heinz, Levi's, Doritos, Coke. You could have you could have just probably made a nice living just doing that, right?
3: Yeah, the first year I did it was pretty good, and then the second year was even better. And you know, I started studying acting while I was doing the commercials and started going out for, you know, more drama-based things like, you know, TV shows right. and f- parts in films and stuff like that.
2: Because you wanted to do that or because the manager's saying you should do that as well? Well, it just seemed like the next step. Yeah. You know, I had done
3: a bunch of commercials and I was like, okay, and, you know, now I don't think that that commercial, that was a different time doing commercials in New York at that time. I mean, it was a sort of like a, you'd see the same group of people, you know, doing them, a bunch of them. from
2: ad to ad to ad, mm-hmm. ad to ad and, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of dried up yeah. now. Yeah. So. Well, so you, you're you taking all these, you, you know, you're studying acting now, I guess, for the first time. You're going out for real parts. What was the the first thing that was exciting for you as far as like an acting role? Would it be Married with Children or was there something even like it seems like for a number of years there, once you're now in the early 90s, you had a few years where it was sort of all within the Married with Children universe just to remind people the the flagship show on Fox, but then also these two spinoffs, Top of the Heap, and also Vinny and Bobby, where you're Vinny, who's Al Bundy's buddy's son, and also the guy who's dating his daughter, right? How did you get into all that?
3: Well, prior to that, I had auditioned for a TV show while I was in New York called TV 101. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like a earlier version it was for CBS it was like an earlier version of Beverly Hills 90210 but dealt with a little more a little more dramatic storylines like you know teen pregnancy and mm-hmm. like drunk driving death and things like that and I flew out here to screen test for it then stayed to do the pilot then went back and there was a writers strike then came back here when we went into production it got picked up we did 18 episodes and then it got cancelled and then realized, oh well I kinda I guess I live in LA now. I had a car and a dog and an right. apartment and so I just stayed here. It seemed like there was more work here anyway. And then there was like bit things here and there and, and then the Married with Children thing came up and we did that, seven episodes of Top of the Heap, and then seven episodes of Vinny and Bobby and then there was kind of a
2: drought for me. I think people would see that there was that string of work and assume that now you're kind of on people's radar and it's gonna be smooth sailing from there. But it you it was not between right. that and friends? No. No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, there's definitely some lean times. I made some money and I kinda of coasted on that till that was till that was gone. And then I think I've told this story before when Friends happened, I literally had like, you know, eleven, twelve dollars in the How box. is that possible? I waited too long to go get a real job <laughs> but I just got lucky
2: right right. How did you first hear about friends? Just even just through my agent the audition yeah audition and did you ever get an explanation for how they came to you just even as a possible candidate for the show? I think they, they auditioned a lot of people.
3: Mm-hmm. I remember the final audition it was between you know the part was a character breakdown I think was for a struggling actor in New York. It didn't say Italian-American. It didn't say anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I remember the final audition was between me and this one other guy, and he had like a cowboy hat on and (laughs) denim jacket and cowboy boots. And I'm thinking, well, we're very different.
2: (laughs) Very, very different. Right. And, you know, luckily it went my way. Yeah. But when you had even just seen the script for the pilot, are you looking at it and saying this is extraordinary or it was just another script?
3: I thought it was funny. I thought it was good. I thought the characters were all really, really defined for a pilot. You know, that's the big challenge, I think, in a pilot is you want to give each of the characters jokes that are very, very clear as to who they are. And it's very important to, you know, you have a lot of exposition in a pilot to put down. So mm-hmm. I think it's very important to be clear about who the characters are and in what neighborhood those particular characters are funny. Mm-hmm. So if you can... Be funny with exposition. That's the sort of the goal all the time, because nobody wants to listen to information. Right, right. You right. Know, if you can make it interesting and funny, the information then it's, it's a little more palatable. Right. I thought it was good. You know, let's be honest. Nobody knew. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: I was like, yeah, it's good. If I'm if I get the job, it's great. Right. If I don't get it, ah, that show sucks. Right. You know what I mean? There was a bit of that, but right. it was like. There was something good, and it was Jim Burroughs, and it was NBC, and it was Breakoff and Crane, who had done Dream On. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this seem, seems right. And it was the
2: buzz, everyone was talking about it. And then the pilot. Well, let's even, if we can just stop before that. So you go in for your audition, you felt it went well? Yeah,
3: I auditioned, uh, I don't know how many times, four or five really? times. Yeah, I went in and then went back for a callback and then went back again and then went back again. And then I remember the final one, I was reading, I read with Courtney Cox, mm-hmm. who was already cast.
2: And she was really the only one of you guys who was kind of like well-known, right? Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know about well-known, but, but known. So, yeah, known. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: yeah. read with Courtney
3: and I thought the jokes worked and it was seemed to be getting laughs. and But, you, you know, you go in and do your best and... The audition process is horrible. I mean, yeah. it's it's the just whole pilot hard. season process, right? But auditioning in general, yeah. it's just it's such a hard thing to, you know, you're at home and you get and you sort of rehearsing and you're getting, you get how you want to. There's so many variables in that sort of formula mm-hmm. you go in is the you know are you going to be reading with an actor are you going to be reading with the casting director sometimes you're reading with the person that's running the camera <laughs> and they've done it now 75 right, times right. and they just don't care anymore and it's your shot so you and you have to manufacture so much i feel really sorry for actors especially me <laughs> if i have to go <laughs> into an audition for
2: something well and to add to your you know, frustrations at, at, of having to audition, had you had sort of an accident before he went in for, I think, the first of those auditions? Was there something where you messed up your face a little bit?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I told that story and Marta Coffin thought it was really funny. <laughs> I was out with a friend of mine. We were talking about that. You know, I had been in a couple of times. It wasn't the first audition. It was, really? I think, the, the producer's callback. And, you know, it was, I was getting closer and closer and it was going good. And, they really like you, so you're going in again on Wednesday, that kind of thing. Right. And this was a buddy of mine. And he was like, "It's well, there was shows about just six friends, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, pretty much." So and they just hanging out. And I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "So then we should go hang out." So you're not nervous, son. <laughs> and we did, and I like fell.
2: <laughs> that a few drinks, like, man. Yeah, come had into a play. few drinks, and I fell. <laughs>
3: sort of <laughs> I fell and got a big scratch on my
2: nose. And went in, and Marta asked me about it, and I told her the story. And she thought it was really funny. <laughs> Your true commitment to the part. Well. That 1994 pilot season is now kind of legendary and really written about in history books, literally, because it produced both Friends and ER, which... Les had a good year that year. Yeah. Mr. Moonville, Yes. Dr. Moonville Dr. Moon. And on top of that... That was the year that they successfully spun off chairs into Frasier, which was a uh, coming on. Oh, yeah. And right. also Seinfeld finally came into its own. So it was a good time to be at... It was must-see TV. Yeah. And there was
3: a lot of... Also, like I remember... I don't know if it was that season, but there was a lot of sort of network cross-promotion between shows. Like I remember we did one that was about a blackout in New York, and Mad About You, and us and er like the power went out (laughs) you know what i mean and all so all the shows that theme sort of carried through the whole night it was really brilliant that's interesting brilliant
2: programming i thought it really worked well so the the whole idea if you mentioned must see tv for anyone who doesn't know exactly where that came from or what it meant can you just explain i know warren littlefield's written a book that kind of gets into it in an interesting way and we had him on this podcast talking a little bit from your understanding, how did that all come together?
3: You know, I don't really know. That'd be a better question for Warren. I was, his, I guess, you know, his, his baby. I really like Warren. He's a nice guy. Yeah. He was really good to us. I don't really know how it all came about. It was sort of a way, I think, to promote the lineup on yeah. Thursday nights, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, it had. It was like a catchphrase. It kind of stuck and worked. Yeah. I don't know if you could do
2: something like that nowadays. The way people consume content now right. is so different. Well, you mentioned another person who was, you know, key in the early days, I think of not just Friends, but maybe all of those shows on NBC, and that's Jim Burroughs. I was at a Directors Guild Awards thing where he was being honored, and one of the people presenting to him said he's made more pilots than a hooker at an airport hotel, which was a good line. But, I mean, he was the (laughs) pilot specialist. And I just wonder, you know, so you now, you get cast on the show. I guess, first of all, do you remember... Finding out that you'd actually finally gotten it? I was living in Beachwood Canyon at the time in the Hollywood Hills. And
3: I remember getting the call that I don't remember what I was doing at the time or what color shirt I was wearing or, anything <laughs> no. or what I was eating. But it was and a big deal. Yeah. You, got, you know, you got the pilot. And I, I had gotten pilot. That was my fourth show. Right. So I'd gotten stuff before and that you know, do a few and, you know, you're going to have, okay, the rent's going to be paid for right. a few months. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was kind right. of that kind of thing. Nobody knew what it was going to turn into. But I remember the night we shot the pilot, it, it, you could feel it in the air. Like the people that were around, people were like, this could be, you know, like the, the heads of the network and the heads of the studio and Jim Burroughs. Because they
2: wouldn't put Burrows on it if it wasn't like a priority, right? He wouldn't be doing a pilot for I it. Think,
3: I, don't, I don't know if it's a matter of put Burroughs on it it's a, more of a matter of Jimmy sort of gets the pick of the litter yeah. he chooses the, right. you know, he, everyone's right. sent everything gets sent to him first right. and he decides what he thinks has a good shot and then
2: why is that though
3: what does he do that's so
2: effective you know
3: he has a he's very interesting there's Jim Burrows, and then there's the rest and I don't mean this as I've worked with some other great directors mm-hmm. I don't mean any disrespect to anybody but Jim Burroughs he's all about the story 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 he's constantly looking to improve between the lines he's looking for the truth you know his dad was a playwright his dad wrote guys and dolls and so he kind of grew up around the theater and around playwrights and you know on this on the new show I'm doing man with a plan he he, Stacy Keach plays my dad and Jimmy told a funny story about Stacy Keach. They both went to Yale, and they were there at the same time. And Stacy was in the drama program, and Jimmy was in the playwrights program. Mm-hmm. And as a, to be in the playwrights program, you had to take a drama class. Mm-hmm. So he shows up for the first day of drama class, and the teacher said, "Okay, this is acting." And Stacy Keach gets up on stage. Yeah, very young, you know, right. Stacy Keach, and delivers this Shakespearean monologue, and it was like chilling, Jimmy said. <laughs> and, and then he goes, That's acting. Right. That was what the guy said. And they've been friends ever since. That's so it's awesome. really funny to yeah. see the two of them together. And That's, Jimmy did is doing this new show for you as well? Jimmy did the pilot oh, and he wow. did a bunch in the first season and then Will and Grace took off and he said, We're getting the band back together right. and now, now we don't have Jim Burrow anymore. <laughs> Which it is really it was really nice to see how excited he was to yeah. go and do that. So I was like, go, go get it. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: First of all, he's a lovely, lovely human being. He's a great guy. He's generous. He has a silliness to him people are really intimidated by him because of his success but he's he's not an ego driven once you sort of get past your the fact that you're working with Jim Burroughs, he's just this really smart really funny loves to laugh just awesome guy yeah. he's a he's a really nice nice guy and he's super talented and his he just has a way of dealing with the writer he he asks the writer to defend the writing mm mm-hmm. And he asks why. And he doesn't say, it shouldn't be this instead. He asks, why is it this way? And I think that encourages these sort of flaws gently to the surface. Yeah. And they can be massaged out. And it, it, he doesn't like, like, nobody doesn't like Jim Burroughs. Right. And he's also
2: hands know. on with the actors, or how does he work yeah, with the actors? Yeah,
3: very hands on. He'll, you know, he just always has interesting, fun ideas. Yeah. You know, he trusts your instincts. He encourages you to think outside the box. He's, he's I mean, look, I can't say enough good yeah. things about him. I love Jim Burroughs. I hear Jim yeah. Burrows for president. Yeah,
2: <laughs> can't be worse. <laughs> I saw a, came across a quote from Lisa Kudrow saying that there was a trip that you guys took, I think after you shot the pilot, but before anyone including you guys had seen it. Yeah, yeah what was that trip? Went to,
3: that was very interesting too. So Jim Burroughs took us all to Vegas. And you know none of us had any money, and he gave us all five hundred bucks to gamble with. And then we went to Spago, and we sat at the in the like main room at Spago, at the very center, big round table. There's seven of us: the six cast members and Jim Burrows. And he said while we were sitting there eating dinner, he said, "Look around." And we all looked around. And he said, "You see that?" And we were like, "What?" He said, "Nobody's looking at you." He said, "Take a good look because that's the last time you're gonna <laughs> be able to do this, the six of you together." And he was right. Yeah. I mean, we all went to McDonald's the next night and nobody gave a shit. (laughs)
2: It took a little while. (laughs) The, The pilot gets finished. We had Marta on this podcast and I was asking her about it. And she said that actually, initially the pilot did not go over well, but it was not. Nothing was different between the pilot originally and then what got approved, except that didn't like the theme music originally they I guess it was originally shiny happy people she said instead of I'll be there for you and they said they were not happy so they just redid it and the only thing they changed I guess was the theme song
3: I don't remember the theme song being a problem I I do remember that Marta and David wrote the lyrics to the theme song and then Marta's husband Michael Skloff wrote the music and they hired the Rembrandts right to perform it And it sounds like
2: this was all because they were getting shit about shiny, happy people. I don't know. But who knows? But coming back to what Burroughs said to you guys in Vegas, how quickly and in what ways did your lives change once people saw the show? Once it went out there for the first time?
3: Well, you know, when it first went out, it wasn't a huge hit right off the the bat. We were in the top 20. Mm -hmm. But it was that first season of reruns, that first summer that it like really took off and went inside the you know got into the top five and then it stayed there forever yeah so when we came back for second season it was a different ball game and that summer you know it was on in reruns and it was like kind of wow this is and i remember all of us sort of had to go get like i was in my apartment still and it just like the neighbors in the apartment building were like knocking on the door hey it's And i was like Okay, this is starting to get a little strange. So everybody sort of, kind of migrated to houses with gates, right. and it got. I remember one time, I was watching the news. It was in the morning, and there was. I heard a helicopter over the house. That was when I bought my first house, and I turned on the TV to see if what was going on, and they had a live like a split, the screen was cut into six boxes. And there was a live shot of each of our houses, a cast of friends. And the helicopter was filming my house. And I remember looking at it going, wow, this is bizarre. And I looked close and I was like, wow, my roof is a mess. So when the helicopter left, I got the ladder out and I went up there. And I was like, fuck shit, I need to I need to address my roof issues. So thanks to the news for that.
2: That's crazy. So I imagine like, when you're playing a part over... 10 years, you're making tinkers to the way you go about it over that period. It's not just a static thing. How did you calibrate it to the point where you know that, all right, so Joey's essentially like a a lunkhead, but he's got to be able to also not be a a total moron if there are times when you need him to be serious and moving and whatever at other points. Is it sort of just left to you guys to figure that out, or do you work with Marta and David? Or how did you figure out the level at which to make this guy the way he was? Well, it's,
3: first of all, it's not a film, so it's not a finite story. You know what I mean? It's kind of infinite. It's all, always open-ended. So you don't really know where it's going. You kind of take baby steps in the development of things, and you try things. And some, in this, in the beginning of a series, you kind of like, well, let's try this. And ah, that works okay, but what if we go in this direction? You, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, figuring it out, finding your way. And we had a, an amazing writing team on that show. We really did some awesome writers came through the door and David Crane and Marta Kaufman did a great job sort of spearheading all that and and guiding those really talented young writers who are now you know all yeah. you know developing other shows and they're all big shots and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> in the writing world and TV now. But they were really really they had great foresight into what the show could be.
2: And you guys were doing like What, 18 to 24 episodes every year?
3: Yeah, we did 22 a year. 22, I think some years we did maybe 23, 24, but yeah. But I mean, it was, there was no lead in the show. It was really a non, it was a true ensemble. Mm -hmm. And we would all watch each other and we would all sort of help one another and we would like think and, support one another and throw ideas around at each other what do you think of this what do you think of that what what is this funny this way or this way or, hey what if you tried this or i don't know what to do here what do you think you know what i mean it was really it was great because i learned i learned an awful lot uh-huh. from those five people i really did and i think we all learned from each other and
2: it was a it was a great experience it was like an education and half hour comedy were you initially, I know you You guys are all friendly now, but as it was getting going, were you particularly close with one of them?
3: We were all close. We'd yeah. all eat our meals together. I mean, it was, I remember Lisa Kudo said, we work harder on these relationships than we do on our marriages. <laughs> and it was kind of true. I mean, it was right. really important to all of us to get along and we were patient with one another. You know, sure, there's always bumps in the road mm-hmm. with everything, but everybody was really understanding and mm-hmm. it, it was good.
2: Do you remember the origin story of... How you doing? Like, where did that come from? Was that you? Was it a
3: writer? I think it was written down in the script, and it just was the way I said it one time was funny. Right. And it kind of stuck. If you go back and look through the sort of, you know, the catalog of, of episodes, I don't know that I said it that many times, really.
2: I watched it the was... YouTube compilation today. There were, a few, there were quite a few, but like, in, I think it was... People spread loved out it. over ten years. Over ten, yeah, though. of course, of course. It wasn't like
3: something I said no, every no, episode. No, no, you know what no, I mean? Well, no, people be, loved it, yeah. Yeah, and it just kind of became this thing. And the actual conception of it was—it was just, you know, it was like a greeting. Yeah. And then it was like, well, I can, maybe I could spin this in a way, and, and it, it was yeah. funny. And because Joey, I think you know, you said you used the word lunkhead earlier. For me, he was never dumb. For me he was always just incorrect. <laughs> he had his own sort of parallel universe right. logic, right. stream of logic and I think the defining thing for that character was the moo point thing, which was really funny moo point and Can you and, remind yeah.
2: if somebody doesn't know what you're talking about just a little bit of a we were
3: talking, I forget what the conversation was, but Joey says it's it's a moo point and Rachel says I'm sorry, a moo point? <laughs> And Joey says, yeah, moo. Like It's like a cow's opinion. Right. It doesn't matter. It's moo. And Rachel says, which is what a moot point is. Right. So it makes sense. And Rachel right. says, have I been living with Joey too long? Does that actually make sense? <laughs> so, it was, it was, But it was kind of like a really sort of defining moment. That one, there was another time where Joey had a conversation with Monica about this girl he was dating, and she was talking about you know, being there sexually for her. And he just, that concept, he just didn't understand. (laughs) I don't
2: know, I'm not following you. I don't don't get you. How much input would you have about your character and storyline? Just for instance, I heard a couple of things I thought were interesting that in the very early days, maybe even starting with the pilot, you had, according to what I read, some concern that Joey was coming off as a little creepy just based on his interactions with the women. Did you... Make a point about that? Yeah, I,
3: I and it was purely out of self preservation. You know, I thought, how long can this go on? This is something that's really working here, this ensemble. And, he, you know, the guy across the hall is hitting on him all the time. It's going to get old. Mm-hmm. What if he, you know, tries to sleep with every other girl in New York except these three? Mm-hmm. They're like sisters. And that kind of really worked. Joy became sort of this, like, Safety blanket, this sort of protective big brother. If there was ever any kind of issue, oh, I'll, I'll, let's go get Joey.
2: Right, right. You know,
3: which was, and it was kind of fun.
2: And was this and also worked? the reason? I mean, I guess the original plan, from what I gathered look, from they, Martin. I mean, we would pitch
3: ideas. Yeah, but they they wrote it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? We had we would pitch jokes and stuff like that, and they wrote it. That one thing about me not, you know, not hitting on them so much was. Purely to make sure I stayed on the
2: show. Well, but it seems like they they found it to be a pretty smart idea because originally, from what Marta said, the plan was for the central romance there, if there was one between the group, it was going to be you and Monica, Joey and Monica. And she said that they felt that that was because you two were sort of, whatever this means, quote-unquote, the most sexual, close quote, of the characters. But then it became Ross and Rachel, I guess, after you said that. I do I wasn't aware of that. I always thought it was Ross and Rachel. I
3: didn't you know You thought from the beginning. Well in the pilot, yeah. You yeah. could see that Ross had been pining for Rachel and she shows up in the wedding dress and right. I didn't know that the plan was to have well, who, who knows Joey like, and Monica.
2: This is there's I guess That's a new what Marta book. says? Yeah, and this Marta new... drinks
3: a lot.
2: <laughs> 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 well and this is second hand actually, Marta, because this I guess there's a new book. I think it's called I'll Be There For You, where they, I think a lot of you guys spoke to them and they were quoting Marta as saying that, but I can't vouch for that one myself. How did you feel though in those later seasons when they started to have a little Joey Rachel exploration? I mean, was that, that sounds like it was everybody kind of. It really felt awkward. Yeah. Yeah. The cast,
3: none of us liked it at all. It felt like taboo to everybody. And I remember we had a conversation with David, we had a big group discussion. Because what we used to do is after run-throughs and after re- rehearsal day, we would sit with Marta, Kevin, and David, all of the writers and all of the cast in Monica's living room, and we would go through, we would do notes. And everybody would sort of, it was like a sort of brainstorming session, which I thought was super productive and I really learned a lot. That, that was, those were like, like notes after the show was really, really great, I thought. Anyway, yeah. so we, I remember in that note session sort of talking about that. And they were, they said, Look, we understand what you're saying. And everybody was, It's just it's wrong. I mean, Ross and Rachel are together. It's just for Joey and Rachel. it just, I, I would Joey do that to Ross? Is that. And David Crane said, I'll never forget it. He said, It's like playing with fire. It's dangerous. But then when you're done, you put it away. You look back on it, you go, Remember when we played with fire? <laughs> and it was. You know, you have to be careful with fire, but there is something about it that's, you know, it demands your attention, and it's intriguing, and it's... And he was right. I mean, it was interesting. It was really interesting to explore. Yeah, And we didn't know where it was going to go. They didn't know where it was going to go. They, you know, obviously, they said, you know, obviously we're concerned as well. Right. But there's something interesting that we like about it. So and I think it was after that that we were all like, okay, well, let's see.
2: And what's extra interesting to me about what you're what you're saying is that, you know, obviously episodes has echoes of different things from throughout your life. And in the, I think in one of the first two or three episodes of episodes, you as quote unquote, Matt, say to your writers that you think that there should be a romance between him and the, the librarian. librarian. Yeah.
3: That was actually the first scene. It's in the car with Stephen Mangan. Yeah. The Sean character. Yeah. That was the first scene shot of the series episodes.
2: Really? Yeah, there's the very first scene I ever shot. Amazing. and But is that just purely coincidental, or is that saying, you know what, we've had conversations like this in, in the course of my career, let's bring this into the show. No,
3: nah, I had nothing to do no, with that. Nothing to do with that. That was David Crane and Jeffrey Clarick yeah. wrote that, and I thought it was really clever. Yeah. You know, that, you know, how long do you think Friends would have lasted if Rachel was a lesbian? <laughs> the character felt you needed that sort of... That attraction, that sort of will they, won't they kind of thing, to sustain yourself
2: over seasons and seasons of yeah. the show, yeah.
3: And it, the the other thing that 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 was an interesting device. That speech was because what it also did was illustrate that the Matt LeBlanc on episodes knew the game mm-hmm. that he was in. He knew the yeah. business. He understood the game. Right. And it was eye opening for the English writer, the character in the
2: show, to be like, oh. He has a good point there. Absolutely, because I think the assumption up until that conversation where you explain your rationale was that he just wants to have scenes with the hot librarian, you know, the actress well, playing no. the hot
3: librarian. Yeah, the assumption on those two characters' part, the husband and wife, Sean right. Beverly, they were like, Joey from Friends? Right. Went, no. right. It was a way to sort of validate my character in the series as a guy who has been around the block. and right. sort of a, like a peek behind the curtain, if you will. right. Very, they did some really clever things. David and Jeffrey wrote an episodes. I'm really proud of. I mean, obviously, Friends I'm very proud yeah, of. Yeah. But episodes I'm really, really proud of as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the writing has been spectacular, and they've sort of pushed me in directions that I didn't anticipate at times. Yeah. And they were very supportive when we got there. And it was... It was a great experience. And Steve Mangan, Tamsin Gregg, and Kathleen Perkins, and the whole cast, yeah. John Pankow, everybody was just fantastic to work with. It Absolutely. was a good group.
2: Well, I want to obviously get in more into episodes in a moment, but just to finish up connecting these dots to there, I guess one... Thing that I came across, so I wonder if you can confirm. You don't want to talk about episodes. Of course, you just I want do. To talk about Not friends. at all. Everybody no, wants no, to talk no. about. No. Well, I I want to talk about both. <laughs> I was thinking when I when I watched episode, I was thinking back about watching episodes and your uh, TV executive there, Merk. It's like, I love your show. He says to the writers, and then it turns out he had seen it. I've I've seen both. I like I love both. So I, I definitely want to talk about episodes. But just a, a few final things here. Were you dyeing your hair? During Friends, because you now have for for a listener who who can't see very you know distinguished nice gray hair, but you sit, you actually had that. Yeah, even Yeah, started right? going
3: gray on the sides in my like mid twenties. Really? And I remember just having to sit in the makeup chair and they would dye you know my sideburns and you know the temples. And, right, and then it got higher and higher and higher until it got to the <laughs> point where I was just shampooing with hair right. dye in the shower. <laughs> and then after Joey ended, I sort of said I took some time off and I was just like. Fuck that! Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna let my hair go gray. Absolutely.
2: Um, as you look back at just the growing success, season by season, I think your ratings went up with Friends. What's at the root of why people loved it as much as they did? You know, it's a very interesting
3: thing in terms of the broad appeal to the show. You know that old saying, "Birds of a feather flock together." So you, groups of friends are all very similar. Mm-hmm. You know, people are similar. But if you look closely at the show Friends, there's six very different characters. You don't really see a group of friends like that. And that's something that no one really talks about. But you have this sort of... Ethereal hippie girl, you have the very sort of anal retentive girl, you have the, you know, girl that's living on daddy's wallet, you have the guy that's the sort of scientist, you have the waspy, quick witted, you know, sarcastic guy, and you have this like sort of struggling actor, you know, dim witted, like out for the girl kind of guy. So you have a very diverse cast. So within that large group of diversity, you, I think to an audience, everybody can relate in some way or another to at least one character, whether it be that's like me, or my brother does that, or my God, that's my sister, or my cousin is just like that, or my friend does the exact same thing, or that's my mom, or you know what I mean? Or my daughter's like that, or you know what I mean? So it had a really broad demographic and it was very it reached a lot of a lot of different people and I think that was part of the big the big appeal to the show. And also, if you look back at it, we never did any topical jokes. Never. We did one in 10 years. One topical joke. Which was that? There's something happening with OJ. as <laughs> the only topical joke. Really? And they felt it was a big enough deal, event-wise, that you could make a joke and it would never go out of stock. Because, the, and I think that's why the afterlife on Friends is so good. We right. dealt with things that are eternal. We dealt with trust, betrayal,
2: love, Family, you know what I mean. Things like that. But do you think today, if the if the show were on was on today, when everybody's sort there'd of there'd be more texting if the show was on. today. Well, that that for sure. But like, there wasn't much texting. Could they not address Trump or things that everybody's talking about? You don't
3: have to address politics. It's escapism. Half-hour comedy. It doesn't have to it doesn't have to do all that. You can reflect opinions, but to you can have reflections and all that but to get into politics is you you can and Mm -hmm. some shows are based on that Mm -hmm. kind of thing but those kind of shows when you look at historically they don't have an afterlife in syndication yeah they really don't and it you know and it's also you know what's that old saying opinions are like assholes everybody's (laughs) got one you know what i mean so
2: that's not what that show was about and i think about politics one of the things i came across where you were saying when you figured out actually kind of where you guys stood what you meant to people was shortly after 9-11 right
3: yeah there was a big thing I think it was on the cover of the LA Times uh, I, think it was, I don't know if it was the calendar section of the main paper talking about America needed its comfort food you know the, it was a brand new world we lived in after that and all those kind of themes she heard all the quotes and everything and they sort of coined us as the comfort food you know clinging to things that were comfortable and I remember mean, sort of, we were all a bit taken aback by it. Because you didn't realize
2: that you served that function for people?
3: Yeah, I think at that point it seemed like it was bigger than a TV show. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's just a TV show. It's not, you know, the cure for cancer or for rocket science. It's make some people laugh for a half hour mm-hmm. or 22 minutes.
2: Right, right, <laughs> right. As that chapter of your life came to a close, were you, basically when you're shooting your final episodes, did you mm-hmm. already know that you were going to be doing Joey? Uh, Yes. You did? Yeah, that that deal was already in place. And Joey itself came about because they wanted to find a way to, or who wanted to find a way to keep this That deal
3: came about because Schwimmer wasn't available. Wasn't available to do what? To do Ross.
2: (laughs) Are you serious? No, come (laughs) on. I don't know. I can't tell. You you got a good poker face.
3: (laughs) And Schwimmer said yes to Ross, the spinoff? It could have been different.
2: different. yeah. But the underlying thing was that the network wanted a spinoff. Is that what started that? Or, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and then, why were you more open to continuing that?
3: Well, from it wasn't like we all threw
2: our hats in the ring to do a spin-off. Joey
3: seemed like the character that made the most sense to do a spin-off of, because you know Chandler and Monica were together, Phoebe married Mike, Ross and Rachel had Emma, they went off together, and Joey was kind of left there you know, as the dust settled, standing there, so right. send them to California, and <laughs> it was fun. I had a good time doing Joey. I thought it was a there was a lot of pressure on that. I remember being at the Upfronts and Jeff Zucker saying, you know, standing at the stage, on the stage at the Upfronts that year. I think it was 05. Mm-hmm. And he had a, behind him on the big screen was a picture of our six faces, the cast of Friends. And he said something I remember exactly what he said, but it was, you know, the gist of it was Friends has come to an end and the the picture fades to black. But in his place is Joey and it's just a picture of me. I was like, fuck, (laughs) no pressure there, Jesus. Right, because
2: there it's like the expectation now is that you're just going to be able to carry it on. Yeah,
3: the pressure was huge. I can lift the weight that six people were lifting. That's a a big shoes to fill.
2: And so you already, it seems like, had a particularly special relationship with David Crane, especially, right? And you wanted him to come do this? Yeah, I wanted David to ride it. But David wanted a vacation
3: <laughs> Which I, they, I mean the, you know the actors we have the you know we put in the least amount of time we work hard but the writers are the ones there late nights fixing the problems and they come back early from their summer break to sort of break stories and they are doing the lion's share of the work they yep. really are hats off to them they're great and I, I you know after 10 years of working with David yeah. well, who better to write it but the network didn't want to wait they wanted to go straight away Just looking back now would I put my foot down and said, I'm not doing it without David? Probably. Yeah.
2: Well, it's just interesting how kind of history gets rewritten because now it's, it's often made out to be like a cautionary tale. Don't do it a spinoff unless you're sure you want to do it or whatever, but like the reality is if it was not the direct offspring of Friends, it was just its own show, the ratings were pretty solid.
3: There was a lot of things going on. There was a big regime change at the network. There was you know, there was a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't on the new regime's development and it wasn't their their baby, so that it didn't get the care it deserved. I thought it was a good show.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I really did. Was it friends? No, it wasn't. Nothing would have been. Right. But I, I was proud of it. I thought it was a good show.
2: The way it ended with that was that the reason that for the next five years you just kind of laid low or you well i was just i was like it's 12 years yeah you know on the same stage i was like i need a break
3: yeah and i went to take a i was going to take a year off and i ended up
2: <laughs> taking like five years or yeah. six or whatever it was but it sounds like it's also an a eventful time. time in just your own life too right mm-hmm. yeah and when you say on the same stage literally on the same stage right this is 24 at Warner Brothers, right? This is the same, same place you guys did I took Friends. The whole crew. I took everybody. You know? Yeah. Interesting. Let's keep the party going, I said. Yeah. Was there ever any thought at any point during Friends, during Joey, after Joey? You know, for a lot of people, particularly 1990s, early 2000s period that we're talking about, less so today, but the ideal for a lot of people was like, or the top of the mountain was film. I want to be a film guy. Now it's actually TV's the the considered
3: cooler. Yeah, to be. there was you know during Friends, everybody on the summer break. You know I want to do a film. I want to do a film. And if I could go back and look at that again, I might have made some different choices or not done anything, and just enjoyed the summer off. But you don't know. No one knew what Friends was going to be when during that summer. You know the between first and second season of Friends, I went and did the Monkey Baseball movie. It was supposed to be a dis like a Disney ass kids movie that Universal right. was doing. I went to some screenings after it was done, I saw little kids having a great time. Yeah. Kids loved it. Yeah. You know, so it, it it did what it was designed to do. And then, you know, I did another one that was probably not a great choice. I haven't made great choices in films, but so what? It was a good experience. Th- being
2: a film actor on top of being in, on a TV show was that important? Back then, yeah, that was
3: sorta of, you wanted to like movies were where it was at. You wanted to get into movies and I think that's how everybody thought. Now, you know, I'm 50. I'll be 51 this summer. I
2: could give a shit about being in the movie business. <laughs> right. I just want some time off. <laughs> right. <laughs> was directing something that ever started to appeal to you? I know that Schwimmer we had on this podcast, I think he started doing it while Friends was yeah, still he directed on, directed right? a bunch of episodes of Friends, yeah. Never really
3: appealed to you, though? Or... It's more appealing now than it was then. Yeah. I don't know if it's something I'll want to do or not. I, I don't really know. Yeah. So
2: I don't think about it too much. So Friends ends in 2004, episode starts in 2011 over those seven years were you still you know regularly in touch with David not super regularly no but you know from time to time check in yeah only because I guess you get this call and I wondered how out of the blue it was that what he and his partner Jeffrey had an idea
3: yeah they called and they said hey we got an idea for a show I said really okay great let's do it I said, do you want to hear what the idea is? I said, oh, yeah, fine, okay. I just, there's a trust level there. Right, I know right. that the thing that I know about working with David and Jeffrey is, are people going to watch it? Who knows? You don't You do know. That's out of your control. Is it going to be good? I would bet that it would be good. Right. I, I know that the quality of the, of the material will be good. I know that the production value will be good because they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Will people watch it? That's out of everyone's hands. That's up to the network. What's it up against? What's the time slot? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's so many variables you don't have control over. So they wouldn't
2: tell you what it was over the phone, but
3: you... No, we got together at a hotel. We had lunch in Santa Barbara, and they pitched to me the entire first season with no
2: notes, just off the top of their head. What are you thinking when they're telling you that just the underlying concept that we're going to be taking you, Matt LeBlanc, a real person, and... Putting quotes around your name, essentially, but like I would be concerned. That's My only question, you know, yeah, I, was like, what, I don't understand that I'm playing
3: myself. What does that mean? They said, well, it's not a documentary. Right? It's a character. It's basically we're going to take the public's perception of celebrity, use your name because you, because of friends and the fame, we're going to use your name and make a fictitious Matt LeBlanc, and you know we're in it together. If we go step by step, if it's something you don't like, we don't do it.
2: Was there any kind of point of reference, like, hey, because I guess Curb, your enthusiasm, was already on. It's obviously a very different show, but the idea that you're essentially playing a guy who shares your name and has a lot of other things in common, like, how easily were you able to wrap your head around what they were trying to do? Pretty easily, I
3: guess. Yeah, it wasn't crazy. And like I said, I, you know, I really trust trusted them.
2: I guess it is a fine line, though, right? Because there are times when they're going to say things about, the mat on the show that I mean I would think are totally unobjectionable to you. Everybody wants nobody's gonna complain if they say you're you know you have a <laughs> nice penis or whatever. But then they're gonna if you if they tell you to go say to your ex wife go call your ex wife a uh, see you next Tuesday. Th- 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 are there conversations about things like that or are you just kind of? Like, because, again, I guess there would be potentially implications in your own real yeah. life.
3: The the thing about calling my in the show, my ex-wife, I see you next Tuesday. I remember having some really sort of interesting, you know, I was like, well, that's harsh, but I understand. But what if that was like a pet name? <laughs> And it was a really interesting idea that if if that was the pet name, like Honey, come on, sweetie, or Cupcake, or whatever you, that lovey-dovey right. thing that people have in relationships, what if that was the pet name? Right. It would really very quickly and very economically give insight into what those two characters' marriage must have been like. Been like yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was really clever to go and do that yeah. way. And they, I pitched that as an idea to
2: t- how to call her that. Yeah. And David and Jeffrey, were, they liked it. If someone other than David and Jeffrey had pitched you this same concept... I don't know that I would have done it. Because it just it depends so much on being able to trust the people you're collaborating with.
3: Uh, you know, sort of this
2: parody of myself. It needed to be someone I could really
3: trust.
2: Was there ever a time where you really felt you needed to push back and say... You know what? Let's not include that because of yeah, these one, concerns. There was one time, and without divulging more than you
3: want, like I if, did it just one one joke. Went, I thought it was a series of jokes that led up to. I thought the last one was just a little too far, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Yeah, we were kind of we we're on the fence about it." So we thought we'd see, take your temperature, on. and I was like, "Yeah, I just think it's,"
2: and they were like, "All right," yeah. and we backed off. Just the tail, just the last one, we right. took away. But you've had a made a good point, which is that like when people say, "Are you worried that people are going to confuse that Matt LeBlanc for the real one?" You said w- after playing Joey for ten years or whatever, they assume you're Joey, right? I mean, it doesn't. They're going to assume no matter. I who. think
3: that's your job as an actor. Your job is to make people believe what you're saying is the truth. Right. You know, I remember doing Lost in Space, and I walked down the street with Gary Oldman. We were going to dinner. And people would look at him, and they were afraid of him because he's known for playing, you know, monsters and stuff. Right, right. I was like, "That's cool." (laughs) You know, you
2: know what I mean. How did they treat you? He's a little peanut of a guy. Right, right, right. You know. Well, what did you find after? How did people assume you are after Friends? Everybody wanted to be friends
3: with Joey. Joey was that guy everybody wanted to hang out with. Girls liked him, guys liked him. He was, you know, a TV show is different than a film. TV shows on in the bedroom. It's on when you're brushing your teeth. It's on when you're having your family dinner. A lot of times the TV's on and it's always it's the same characters in a lot of different situations mm-hmm. that sort of intertwine themselves into people's lives. So they feel like there's a relationship there. A film, when you go see a film, not so much anymore, but it used to be an event. You would go to dinner and a movie and you watch it on the big screen. It was larger than life. And television was a little more. Oh, I know these people I have a relationship with these people because it's a lot of different scenarios you see those characters in, whereas a film is a finite mm-hmm. sort of period of time in the story. So there's a different effect, and you know people
2: like that character.
3: Oh, it's interesting. They like all six of those characters. Yeah. you know.
2: Yeah, well, the thing that surprised me the most, you guys shot largely in England, right? I mean, it's a sh- it's so crazy because it's a show that's essentially set. In and around Hollywood. but Especially ha- the first
3: season, we shot the whole thing in the UK, so there's a lot of special effects. More special effects than any other half-hour
2: comedy. That's crazy. <laughs> you don't think of no, spe- green screen. That was because, what, it was just budget, budget, budget to do it, yeah. yeah. Was it strange, not asking to say good or bad, but strange to now, on episodes, be back with David but not have Marta there, when these guys were essentially both so present. Well, Jeffrey was
3: always around
2: on Friends, and okay. Jeffrey was sort of like an uncredited writer on Friends. He was.
3: Let me just set the record straight. Yeah. It was it was Marta and David, but Jeffrey Clark was around a lot. Okay, I didn't know. And that. he was helpful in the room and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's just true. Yeah. And David and Jeffrey together on this was a was a great team, mm-hmm. as well as Marta and David were. Yeah. It's good writing. Yeah. You know, it starts on the page. You know, it's funny. It's like, you know, when someone tells you a story, if it's a shitty story, it's really hard to stay interested. Right. It has to be a good story to start with. You can have a great storyteller tell you a shitty story. It's still a shitty story. (laughs) But if you have a great storyteller tell you a great story, now
2: you got something special. Right. Right. You know. Is it true? I guess it was a constant with both Friends and episodes that... They'll take input, whatever, but they do not want improvisation. you got to stick to the words, right?
3: On Friends, and it's the same with Man With a Plan, when it's a multicam sitcom, Mm -hmm. you have four cameras, you have guys on the catwalk, the sound department on telescopic, fish pole, booms to pick up the sound. They're all on line cues. So the last word of your line, then they're jumping, they're moving their shot to the next. So you can improvise in the rehearsal process, but when it comes time to shoot it, There's no room for that. Now, that said, there are shows that are a little looser, Mm -hmm. but David Crane, and in my opinion, the writer writes is not versus isn't for a reason. Right. So it's my job to use those words that are given to me. That's the puzzle. You have to figure that out. That's the challenge. If you abbreviate and you, you know... Can dance and leave things out, and the gist of that—that that doesn't fly. No. Comedy has a rhythm to it, you know what I mean? There's a—it's like bars of music. There's a dance. Things happen in threes. There's a lot of rules to it, and there's a lot. You know, this sometimes this sounds funnier than this. Why? I don't know. It just does. You have to have an ear. You develop an ear for it. So, in my opinion, you need to, as the actor, respect the time that. In the, I've been in the writer's room and I've you know, been a fly on the wall and see them they will obsess about little things like that should it be is not or should it be isn't should it be banana or should it be orange should it be you know what I mean And they, they're smart people and they have group discussions and they pull at threads and logic threads and things like that and they've, this is what they've come up with now they're not always right sometimes you put it up on his feet and they come down and they watch it and they see it and they go, that doesn't really work. Sometimes it works sitting around the table in theory, but when you put it up on his feet, it doesn't work. That's why it's called the rehearsal process and you massage things and you, you make it better and better and better and better and better. And on episodes with single camera, David and Jeffrey, it's very you know we'd have guest actors come in sometimes, and they would just kind of abbreviate and condense and get the gist of, and they wouldn't be right on the, and you'd see them just go over with the script and go, "Do you need to look at it?" Mm-hmm. They're very polite. Yeah, do you need to look at it? And I would just get a, I would
2: just sit back and go, oh, "Okay, here come the fireworks."
1: <laughs>
3: well, he's getting out the big gun now. You're in trouble, buddy.
2: <laughs> well, to your point, I think I've heard people say, and I don't remember where this. I'm sure it's not like one person's idea, but they say TV is the writer's medium where they're essentially in charge. Film, director, and I guess theater theater is where actors really. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that as well, Kind of interesting. So you brought up multicam versus single cam, and I want to ask maybe if we can just list, that's one of several major distinctions between these two shows that you spent the most time in your career a part of, so Friends, multi camera, which also means live audience episode single camera, no audience. I really love multicam. The new show Man with a Plan for CBS is back doing multicam again. Is that where you're more you feel more at yeah. home there?
3: Well, you're telling a story chronologically. Single cam you shoot completely out of order and it's at it's whatever serves the production schedule the best. If you have a location, if there's in a restaurant that there's two scenes that take place in that restaurant but there's multiple days between story wise right. there's multiple days between those two scenes you know like it's the beginning and the end of the whatever the piece you're gonna shoot those two scenes the same day and you might shoot the last one first before the first one just wh- however it facilitates right. whatever's economically the most effective for production but with a live audience you can't do that because they won't know, they won't be able to follow the story right. so you have to tell it in chronological order and with a live audience you can tell if the jokes are funny because if you say the punchline and they don't laugh it's probably not fucking funny
2: right And you really feed, as the actor, off of the audience, right? And the
3: writers are all there, and they're watching. They didn't laugh. So that joke does not, let's, let's, in second take, you can guarantee that that joke's not going to be there. There's going to be something new. Right. And you kind of try to look at spots where I'm not sure about this joke. It's been good during the week, but I don't know if I have a lot of faith in it. So I try to encourage the writers, let's have a couple of backup jokes. I like the area, the neighborhood that the joke's in. I don't know if it's just right yet. And they would be like, yeah, we feel the same way. So let's let's write some backup jokes there, and we'll just plug
2: one in. Yeah. And you can do that. Then to come back to the number of episodes, in with Friends, you guys, again, somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 24 season, here with episodes you can do maybe six, seven sometimes. First season was seven.
3: Second, third, fourth season were nine, nine each. yeah. And the fifth and final season was seven again. But that was because... You know, the very interesting way, usually with a show you have a you have a head writer and you have a writing staff. With episodes, David and Jeffrey wrote there was no writing staff. They wrote every word of every episode and they wrote the whole season in advance wow. before we started shooting. So we shot the entire season like a film. I'd walk around with seven episodes in a binder, you know, on any given day you're shooting where it's a scene from episode seven, then it's a scene from episode three, mm-hmm. then it's a scene from four and then it's two scenes from five, and that'd be any given, you know, something. It was all over the place, just to, like I said before, to facilitate being economical with the budget. And it was tricky to keep your place, but they wrote it all, they were on set every day, they were right there, they were all over it. And if you were ever lost, you could go to them and they
2: knew, tell you exactly where you were. Well, when you're looking though at a 24 versus six, potentially, do you think that it's easier to sustain quality over six than it is over 24? Like, do you feel like there's something gained by, aside from probably having a nicer schedule for the that's, actor? That's an interesting question. Well, the
3: schedule is different. When you're doing single cam, you're working 12, 14, 16-hour days. When you're doing multi-cam, you have one long day, and that's Friday show night. But you don't go in until noon and you're out at you know, in the evening, It's mm-hmm. as long as it takes, but monday's a table read and then you go home so that's an hour mm-hmm. Tuesday's rehearsal day that's probably four four hour day wednesday four five hour day thursday an eight hour day mm-hmm. tech day and then friday show day eight to ten hours whatever yeah. but single cam it's like shooting a film you're in makeup and also in multi-cam you're only really shooting mm-hmm. if you have some pre-shoots on the day before fine but the bulk of it you're shooting one day a week but with the single cam, you're in makeup, you're on camera all week. You don't have the rehearsal process either. Right. You get to run it and block it, and then you're shooting it. Did you miss that? The rehearsal process is where you discover things. It's really fun to discover, and it's, it's fun. It's fun to find what's funnier, this yeah. or this. Yeah. Because in my opinion, the difference between comedy and drama, drama is you're telling a story, you have character development, you have conflict, you have resolution, you have all those things in a comedy you have the same exact things plus it has to be funny right so it's an additional challenge but it's a it's basically the same thing but you have one more yeah, hoop to jump through if you will
2: how about when you're on NBC with friends versus being on showtime here you've had to deal with uh, a lot of network standards and practices now you can say or show anything do you feel some people say they actually like having to like Seinfeld with his comedy generally says I like having to work within rules it forces me to actually be more creative. Other people say, "Why?" I think you can make a better point if you can show somebody nude or saying fuck or whatever. Where do you fall on that?
3: I can see both sides of the argument. I really can. You know, there is a challenge to work within the confines of network television and get the point across. It's it's sort of the challenge is to say it without saying it. And then, you know, you can say, see you next Tuesday on Showtime. Now, gratuitous swearing, that's not really my cup of tea yeah. if you will but sometimes in that environment that's where if it's you know earned mm-hmm. you know like i said to use that that word see yeah. you next tuesday as a pet name i thought was a really clever way yeah. to do that and i think it worked but to just have the form where you can do that and then just to, you know do that it's not as effective you know what i mean but to have the form to do that and then sort of earn those moments is is another thing
2: the last of those kind of one versus the other I want to ask you about is with Friends. You guys, I think, average somewhere around like 30 million viewers at your height on the finale, 52 million. I think you're probably one of the last shows that will ever be anywhere near that ballpark. Like now the highest rated shows are not there and most of them Six, are, eight time, yeah. yeah.
3: Roseanne was a big surprise. A they did incredible numbers. The landscape of television has changed. That was still back when there was like four or five channels. Right that won't happen anymore is it because friends was that great there was other shows that were pulling those now seinfeld was pulling better numbers than us mad about you was pulling frazier was pulling those shows on other networks that was a hit show number you know what i mean we weren't setting the house on fire we were in the top mm-hmm. you know in the top echelon of shows but those numbers won't be reached anymore i think our highest one was the one after the Super Bowl but if you can come after if you can follow the super bowl on the same network and have yeah. a decent retention rate, your numbers are going to be huge.
2: But is there on the flip side maybe some value these days when you have a show on a pay cable place like Showtime where you're not even trying to do what they tried to do at the networks where it's like in a way I think they would always describe it as like at least objectionable content. You can you don't want to offend anybody so that everybody has a, you know, potential reason to tune in. Now, you know that not everybody's gonna watch your show so you can kind of go after a more niche audience you feel that way with yeah, that's with that's a that's a good point
3: that's an interesting way to look at it i don't know yeah i remember when when <laughs> when episodes premiered and I looked at the number the number was like i think it was almost 900,000 viewers. And I was like, well, that was fun. Let's clean out our locker. See you later. (laughs) That's canceled. For you to see those numbers. No, no, that's (laughs) good. it is? In what world is that? Because I had been away from it for a while. You know, I was out, you know, out on the ranch sort of playing with the cows and, and just not.
2: The world changed. Yeah, the
3: world had changed when I got back.
2: So the fifth season finale of episodes went out on October 8th of last year why did you guys end when you did, and are you happy that it ended when and the way that it did? Or was that sort of, did you feel that was imposed upon you guys?
3: No, it was certainly not imposed upon us. It was David and Jeffrey's decision to end it there. Mm -hmm. They felt like they had told the story, and it was their decision to end it there. You know, I think it was sort of go out on top. It wasn't a horrible experience. It wasn't like we can't work together. It wasn't anything like that. It was just they felt the story had been told and tied it off with a bow, and that was the end of it.
2: Right. All right, so here's the big picture stuff. Just first thing that comes to mind. What's your happiest memory of the Friends years, if I say, you know, the first thing that comes to mind about that and of the episode's years, just the two-parter there?
3: I guess, I don't know if it would be one event. I think it would be just sort of this it felt like a ten year education looking back on it just sort of this like formative and successful and it's just like hard hard to describe. Yeah. It was a great thing to have been a part of. Everyone should have an experience like that. Yeah. Unfortunately that's not the case. they are few reason. and far between. Right. I feel very 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 fortunate to have been a part of it. And with episodes I think a similar thing, you know, episodes was it's very critically acclaimed. It's, you know, people really like it. They get a kick out of it. It's shocking at times. Okay, next one. I believe you have... It definitely a... wasn't the craft service on episode.
2: <laughs> I can tell you that. Can't compete with no. NBC. <laughs> no, you
3: can't. Not in the UK. When they come around with the little triangle sandwiches with the <laughs> cucumber and butter sandwich, you're like, are you... Fucking kidding me! (laughs) (laughs) All
2: right, so I believe you have a a daughter who's twelve or thirteen now, fourteen. Okay, Mm. what has it been like to watch her grow up and discover friends? And she's funny.
3: She doesn't really. She could give a shit that
2: what daddy does. Yeah, I
3: mean, she gets a kick out of it, but I don't think she's. I'm her dad, Yeah, you know what I mean? And I really try to keep the two things separate. I try to be as normal as I can. I try to keep her out of the limelight. I try to just, you know, I had a normal childhood. I don't want hers to be really affected by it, so please don't fucking mention her. <laughs> 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 she does get a kick out of it, though. It's funny. You know? I would say, like, but yeah. even
2: what's it like to, to have her watch it, like, st- for you, you put your well, heart and soul into that.
3: Yeah, she watches it, and she 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 thinks it's funny, and she's. I think it's probably weird, right? Like she watches the new show, Man with a Plan. She, episodes, she can't watch; it's a little too not her thing. Well, it's a little too. She's not old right, enough. Right, right, she'll right, watch right. it someday, right? But, but with Man with a Plan, she watches it, and she'll say, "The guy that plays your dad is so funny." I'm like, "What about the guy that? What about your dad?" <laughs> eh, he's alright, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Because it, it's it's when you know someone really well and you watch them act, you could say, yeah, you were good. You, you don't believe it. Right. It's, really, it's a weird thing. It's like, yeah, you, you were good, Right. but I know that's not you, so it's hard for me to believe.
2: I guess it so. looks
3: to me like you're full of shit. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I like do. I watch things that I have good friends that are actors and I watch them and I'm like, yeah, yeah. it looks like acting to me because <laughs> I, I know you. Now, if you know the general the majority of people that are watching it do not know you can't please everyone no but they so they don't know the sort of intricacies of your personality like your close friends and family
2: do right so they can believe what you're saying do you know what i mean i do the second to last one is sort of the the requisite one that you probably get more than any other but these days they are rebooting everything we've seen full house will and grace roseanne i know murphy brown's on the way list goes on no Is it it's a no. Your question? but what's your
3: what's David the reason Crane and Marta don't want to do it also I've answered this question before you're talking about the Friends reboot the reunion right sure that show was about a finite period in your life it was like after school and before your life really got started and if you think about the end of Friends now their lives are starting Ross and Rachel go off Monica and Chandler move to the suburbs with the babies Phoebe and Mike are married Joey goes off it was that time prior to that, where they were each other's emotional support system. That's what that show was about. After that, it's a different show. It's a different. I mean, what they all get together for, like a Christmas dinner.
2: Or I mean, Is old, it, but what, older people have what's friends. What's the
3: story? Yeah, yeah, but what's? But it was that was what the magic of that show was, right. was how they were there for no pun intended, how they were there for each other. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, and I always say, nobody wants to see Joey at his colonoscopy. <laughs> nobody wants to see that. Fair enough. His colonoscopy is uh, fine. Yeah, yeah, glad to hear it's doing well. <laughs> Last <laughs> question. Clear, knock wood. Right. We're all good to go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is going to go well with the, with the topic of colonoscopy, but I saw that you said that you've contemplated, I think you first said this after Friends ended, but then again, more recently, that, You know, even though you're only fifty, you've contemplated just retiring from acting. Is that true? Yeah. Why? Well,
3: my favorite thing to
2: do is nothing. (laughs) I'm great at it.
3: I swear to God, I really am. It's it would be great to do nothing. I like my job. It's fun and I feel like I've reached a point in my career where I'm afforded and I feel really fortunate, but but I feel like I'm afforded good opportunities to go work with good material. Right. And I've been fortunate enough to make some decent money, mm-hmm. so I'm okay there.
2: You wouldn't be bored just not having Fuck, somewhere you no. had to go
3: <laughs> No way.
2: So this really might
3: happen? It really might happen. Oh, I mean, you I'm, put out an announcement? In the
2: middle them? of a No, I'm, like, damn, I, it, it's
3: like I, I remember I was on Conan O'Brien's show, and I made a joke saying, yeah, yeah I'm going to retire. Yeah. And I was kidding. Got a lot and of
2: pickup. it got picked up all over the place. But, like, you know, it was a shocking thing. We were here covering in the newsroom a few Months ago, and we get a press release, Daniel Day-Lewis has announced his retirement from acting. So we should be forewarned that that could come. Matt LeBlanc has announced his Daniel retirement. Daniel Day-Lewis retired? Yeah, that was his last movie. But he didn't come out of the house that much to begin with. No, well. he was pretty reclusive anyway. <laughs> he was a cobbler. He did his other other yeah, things. Yeah, but... shoes? Is that what he was doing? <laughs> could be. <laughs> thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. All right, thank you.